Mac Power Users, Episode 26, Workflows with Dan Benjamin. Hello, friends. This is David Sparks. Along with me is my fellow Mac Power User, Katie Floyd. How are you doing today, Katie? Oh, it's great to be podcasting again, David. It seems like it's it's been a little while since we've done one of those and really excited about doing another workflow show. Yes, and our guest today is uh, Internet Star Dan Benjamin. How are you doing, Dan? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Now, Dan uh, is a software developer, uh, user interface designer, um, a writer at HiveLogic.com. Is it .com? Sure. Yeah. I've been reading your blog for some time, Dan, and also... You have got your own podcast studio yourself running now. Yeah, I sure do. It's uh, been going for about four months now. I've podcasted on and off since maybe oh two, oh three, uh, but really wanted to give this a go full time. So yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, the, I know there's two that you have that I, I particularly enjoy. One is the conversation, and uh, you want to talk just a little bit about what that is. Well, yeah, uh, definitely. That's that's one of the main shows that that I'm involved in for sure. And the concept behind the show was: wouldn't it be neat to get a handful of people together with sometimes the same, sometimes different opinions, and talk about the things that geeks like me are interested in? So, you know, a few examples of the show we've talked about. Uh, I had John Gruber and Andy Nako on there, and we talked about the whole uh, Gizmodo iPhone affair. We've talked about things that are super technical, like the H.264 uh, media file format and how the laws work around that. And and then a lot of the time we've had a whole bunch of much sort of uh, lighter, uh, more enjoyable, less technical talks, you know, things like Heritage Dr. Pepper and uh, the Palm Pre and the iPad. So we, we try to have fun. It's definitely a tech-focused show. That's yeah, kind of like, uh, like Oprah for geeks. Well, I haven't heard it described it. that way, but I like it. Yeah, well, I I love it. I that's one that I always make sure to listen to whenever you put a new show out. And you also well, do thanks. the do the pipeline where you uh, interview one particular person, and that's pretty neat too. Thanks. No, I love I love that show because it it gives me a chance to talk to people who are my role models and heroes, and uh, and interview them and learn what inspires them. You know what else I love about listening to your show, Dan, is you you make um, references to kind of growing up as a as a hacker and your days back on the Apple two. And I was right there with you. You know, I'm an old guy too. And I just, <laughs> all that stuff. I just love, I mean, I remember back when I think on one show you had, they were talking about the battles between the old, uh, radio shack color computer and the Apple two. Oh know, yeah. Camps. And I, it just brings back memories for me, all that stuff. No, it's fun to, it's fun to remember those times. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I, I preferred it back then, but there was something about being one of the few people who actually understood and were doing this stuff. Uh, and now, you know, everybody has a computer and I think that's a good thing, but I think it was something very cool about, you know, having this computer in your house and knowing like you were the only person for miles and miles who, who had had that and knew what was going on. Yeah. The other nice thing about it is, uh, you've, you've experienced the whole journey. I mean, you, you and I both have kind of grown up with computers and it really lets you appreciate, like when you look at the iPad, and you think about where you started. I mean, I remember when I used to save my basic files to a cassette tape. Oh know? yeah. And now I'm carrying this, this iPad around it. Just to me, I really appreciate how far we've come in so little time. Oh no, you, you make an excellent point in that 
you know, people are talking about things like cloud storage and how they're so upset that their bookmarks don't sync properly into the cloud, but, you know, they're using Google Documents every day. And you think about that, and you think that's just, it's a given that you can release these devices that just use cloud storage, of course, you know, and, and my little boy who's two now, you know, by the time that, that he's an actual adult, Will anybody even have any actual media in their house? You know, maybe, but probably not. Probably it's just not. amazing to see how that's changed and the things that we take for granted have yeah. evolved. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, we're here to do the workflows episode, and uh, this is a new series for us. We've just done one so far, and you're our second guest, and we're really uh, uh, pleased that you agreed to come on. I'm and thrilled to you. be here. And the idea of the workflows is, you know, uh, a lot of our listeners are Mac power users or people turning themselves into Mac power users. And uh, Katie and I yak a lot about how we do certain tasks on our Mac and it's kind of fun, but once in a while it's nice to hear from someone else. So there's really two questions for this show. It's, it's what important work do you do on your Mac and how do you go about doing it? Well, you know, I, I'm again, thanks for having me on the show. I love to talk about this stuff and uh, I'm, I'm happy to tell you guys what it is that I do. And I kind of, I kind of have two different responsibilities, even though I am podcasting full time, there's, there's those tools. And then there are the tools that I use to write code. And I guess, I guess there's a third thing, which is I haven't been doing it as much as I'd like to, but I do write. And those are sort of the three things in general that I use the Mac for. So I I don't, I'm not really, you know, I, I, of course I've listened to your past shows and I listened to Merlin Mann, uh, who's a, a, a good friend of mine. And, I'd love to hear his workflows, but I don't really focus as much on, on workflows and systems, I think, as he does. I focus much more on, uh, and, and maybe, maybe he, it's, it's to my detriment, but I focus more on just like getting something out the door in a lot of cases. Uh, so the tools that I use re- are relatively simple and I don't have deep, uh, workflows surrounding them. Um, but which, which should I talk about first? Which of those two or three things do you want to hear about? Well, first of all, just a comment that I think what you're talking about is a lot healthier than the way I do it because I go nuts on this stuff sometimes. And Some people can get a little too deep. Uh, sometimes I think for me, it's a, I use it as an excuse not to actually get something done. It's like, well, wait a second. I have to stop and figure out the best system. <laughs> Well, you well, know what though? That's a testament to, to Mac OS, uh, as, a, as an operating system in that you can, you can approach it either two ways. For some people, it just gets out of their way. And for others, it becomes something that, that you can customize. And the apps, I think, on Mac OS 10 work the same way. They can do as little or as much as you want in a lot of cases. So why don't we talk a little bit about blogging though? Because, you know, HiveLogic has been around a long time. When did you first start that blog? Um, I think it's been 10 or 11 years now. I think it was either, I'm trying to remember when I actually I had a, one or two blogs before I registered that domain name, which, by the way, my wife thought of. Uh, but I think that site in its in its current home at, at HiveLogic.com has probably probably been about ten years. Yeah, that's really impressive that you've been able to stick it out and and keep coming up with posts after that many years. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot fewer posts these days than uh, than I'd like, but. Uh, I just got there early and I used to, I used to write my own publishing software. Uh, you know, I've, I've written HiveLogic has been, uh, had a many different content management systems publishing it. Currently it's expression engine, but, uh, most of the time it's been something homegrown, something that I've built in whatever happened to be the language that I liked at the most or was learning at that, at that given time. Everything from PHP, I even had a, a cold fusion version of it. Uh, and of course, Rails. So right now, though, it's uh, happily hosted in uh, Expression Engine. 
That's kind of interesting. So you actually use the blogging process to help help learn some of the programming language. Oh, definitely. The first thing that I always like to build whenever I'm learning a new framework or a new language uh, is, you know, let's build a blog tool in it and see, you know, because these are things I'm very, very familiar with after building. And for many years in my career, if you can call it that, of, of software development, I my job and my business focused around building publishing tools for other people. So it was something I, I knew how to do really well. And it was always fun for me to say, well, I know that I need to build these 10 things, for example, to, to make a content management system. Let's see how to build them in Ruby on Rails. And let's see how to build them in you know, Java struts or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the approach that I took, build something that's familiar uh, while learning something new. Nice. Well, what, what do you think, Dan? Because you probably started blogging before there was even the term blogging, and now it... It seems like between Twitter and Facebook and individual websites, everybody has some kind of blog or some kind of, of personal outlet on, on the web. And you've probably been around and seen all of that evolve and been in the middle of it. So do you have any comments or thoughts just in the evolution of how it's gone from uh, something that really only the geeks did to something that everybody is doing now? Well, that's a great observation, uh, Katie. I think it's at the end of the day, I'm in favor of any tool that makes it easy for people to express themselves and their their creativity. So I think things like there are people who actually don't like Twitter or don't like Facebook or don't like some of these microblogging tools because they feel that it takes away from, uh, I don't know, you know, literary quality on the web. But I think that there are plenty of people out there who are still blogging every single day and writing things that that are important. But watching back to your your question, the evolution of it, and my feelings toward it, I really do think that Twitter is fun and important because it takes, and I was actually talking to Jeffrey Zeldman about this uh, not, not long ago. You know, to me, when I first got into this whole thing of, of blogging, there were very few other people out there. It wasn't called blogging, like you said. And it seemed like these were these huge people. They weren't approachable. They were these, you know, mythical icons, you know, the, well, I'll pick on Jeffrey since we're friends, the Jeffrey Zeldman, uh, you know, the Merlin man, these people out there who were almost, uh, you know, Greek gods of sorts. And, you know, it, although they may deserve that kind of respect, seeing them on Twitter, you know, talking about, oh, I got a haircut today, somehow it humanizes them in a, in a way that I think is good and is important. And it also makes that channel to communicate with them uh, much more direct. So, you know, I hope that people who enjoy the shows or don't like the shows or the things that I write feel like they can approach me easily. And there's something less formal about, you know, sending a tweet to somebody on Twitter than there is about composing an email or, or using a contact form on somebody's site. You know, when I was back in high school and college, it was kind of before the internet took off. And that was back in the early 1800s. Yeah, it felt like it. <laughs> but you know, I was a, I studied political philosophy and, and I was just obsessed with the way, like during the revolutionary period, everybody had their own newspaper, you know, every, <laughs> you know, all of the different political interests and, you know, everybody just published their own newspaper and they handed it out. And I remember thinking at the time how great that would be that, you know, you could have an opinion and share it that way. Because back in those days, I mean, media was was really controlled. And th this was only 20 years ago. Right. And, you know, then you step back and look and, you know, we're right back there now. And it's uh, it's just amazing to me 
uh, how easy it is and how you know how, how low the barrier of entry is now at this point if you oh, have it's, an opinion it's, it's zero it's zero yeah and i think it's it's an interesting comment that you make about printing your own newspaper and the media being something that i mean it's still the media still controls a lot of things uh, and having something like Twitter and having something like a blog and having that zero entry point, anybody who wants to can go create a Twitter account and start start talking. And they may not have any followers at first besides robots, but they're there and Google knows about them. And trending topics on Twitter knows about them. So it's it's much, much easier to make your statement, even if you only have one statement a day or a week or a month, it's it's much easier to become part of a community now uh, than it was a handful of years ago, you know, but then again, 10 years ago when I started, if you were doing anything at all, it was a big deal. I mean, you were one of very, very few people doing it. If, if you wrote a blog and you updated once a day or once every few days, just the fact that you put anything out there at all was significant because so few people were doing it. Yeah, I remember when the internet first started to take off and I got the idea that I could read most of the internet. I mean, there wasn't that much out there, and I was thinking I could probably cover most of Well, it was AOL or CompuServe. Or, no. I mean, you laugh, but and at the time you're thinking, well, I could probably keep up with this thing. You know, you had no idea where it was going to go. Right. You didn't. Well, and and the whole thing is, you didn't need something like an RSS reader. Uh, you didn't need those extra kind of tools to find your way on the internet. You didn't need, you know, you didn't need some piece of software. You just had other than the browser. You had a browser. You might have a few bookmarks. You'd, you'd open. I remember when I could, and I used to do this every morning, I would go in and I would open all of my bookmarks for the, the blogs that I read. And, you know, I'd have, I'd have a handful of things to read in the morning and it, you know, a handful of sites and that was it. And now in my RSS feed reader, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm, if I can keep it to below a hundred feeds, boy, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. Right. And that's crazy. Yeah, you talked about a lot of things, actually. You said, well, I, I really only use my computer for podcasting and uh, and writing and I'm, you know, a, a couple of things. But it, it, you're talking about a whole lot of other things sure. now. We're talking about Twitter. We're talking about blogging. We're talking about RSS feeding. So so it sounds like you do have workflows for a lot of those things, even though they may not yeah. sound like really formal workflows. Oh, definitely. I have a ton of informal workflows that I haven't spent enough time uh thinking about how to optimize them, but I definitely, you know, I, and I can, I don't know what the best way to do this. Do you guys just want to know the apps yeah, that I use? I mean, what's start what's talking about, I guess. Well, you know, we can, we can start with, with the news thing. Um, you know, I, I definitely, I, I love, uh, I love net newswire. Brent Simmons wrote that. And that's, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, what I would do as far as trying to gather news and, and keep up with things. If I didn't, if I didn't have that, I mean, like I, I'm aware that, web browsers have RSS readers built into them and that, that some human beings would consider using those. Sorry, Safari, but it, I'm not using that. Yeah, I never um, really understood what that was supposed to do. Okay, so you've given me one page as an RSS <laughs> feed. Thank you. But I'll tell you what, I never, I never uh, read the news stories. And this is, this is weird. I never read the news stories really in the RSS feed reader. Uh, I certainly don't use the embedded browser inside the RSS feed reader to read the really? news. Never. Absolutely not. Um, th this is what I use in RSS because I believe strongly, strongly, that if somebody goes to the trouble to create a true website, not just a blog with a, a generic theme on it, uh, but 
something where they've customized it. They want it to look a certain way and they've, they've put their time and energy into that and they've customized fonts and they've hooked up with Typekit and they made it pretty to see and they have graphics and a logo. You know what? I, I, I'm, I'm quite content to look at their site the way that they uh, would like for me to look at it and actually visit their website. And beyond that, a lot of the sites that I read rely on uh, rely on things like advertisements to stay in business, to keep doing the quality writing that they're producing. So, and and, and I know from having sites that are driven in some ways by uh, by views and ad revenue and traffic that you know if I just am reading their RSS feed and reading it there, I'm not helping them continue to be successful. So. For me, the RSS reader is simply to bring to my attention what those new stories are, what the new things that the people that I like have written. And if, if it looks interesting, I may read the first paragraph or first sentence or some, uh, a summary. I will immediately write Arrow, which is one of the things I love about NetNewsWire, and I have that set to open a new tab in my frontmost uh, browser behind so I'll go through there, I'll open all of the tabs. I may have five, I may have 50, and then I will switch over to Safari and read all of those uh, stories one by one in the tabs. And that's that's how I do that. And uh, I guess that's a workflow. Sure. But I, I do that because I would much rather experience the site the way that the uh, creator, the author intended me to experience it. And I'm happy to happy to look at and click the ads that are there. I'm one of those people. That because I know, having run sites and running sites like that, that that's important to do. So uh, that's my way of saying thank you uh, to those people. Okay, but as a publisher, what is your opinion about uh, putting a limited uh, text in the RSS feed versus the full article? Well, in in my case, I'm all for it. Um, I, I'll say this: on Hive Logic, I've never done that. I've never had just summaries, and I never will have just summaries because. Uh, people get too angry about that kind of thing, and they feel like you're taking something away. And I know I also know that I'm weird in that uh, in the way that I read these stories, or uh, uncommon at the very least. But I, uh, you know, sites like uh, the other site that that I run, Playgrounder.com, which is like uh, a uh, cool stuff for kids site. Uh, that one we always have run the smaller or truncated summary type uh, things in the feed, mainly because, again, we, we, we spend a lot of time creating really great images and trying to create a really cool experience for the user so that when you go there, you're going to see this great big image. It's going to look really cool. And we do spend time and money making that look good. So, you know, and to be honest, we're driven, that site is driven by traffic. If we get more traffic, we earn more money. So it's important for me to do that. And I figure, you know, we don't charge people anything. Um, we give them information about the item in the summary, but you know, if you want to read about it, go to the site. And, and that's how I, I'm, I strongly believe that that's a perfectly okay thing to do. Uh, I, I, I guess the people that are the most bothered by it, um, maybe are the people who read Google reader, which is unusable to me. I could never use uh, Google reader. Oh, uh, we're about to start a fight. Not at all. I, yeah. I use Google Reader, but it's interesting because I use it almost the same way you do. Um, when I go through, the same way you use NetNewsWire, when I go through the feed, if you hit the V key, it opens a tab with the article in it. So I flip through Google Reader and hit the V key on any one that I want to wa- read, or I'll start with the S key if I'm going to come back later. And uh, so when I'm done, I'll have you know 20 tabs open right. in Safari, and then I'll just go through them. 
Uh, so uh, how do you deal? How do you deal with uh, the horrible uh, Google user interfaces, though? Uh, I mean, b- besides besides analytics, uh, which I really like that user interface. Um, gosh, I just I just can't look at the go- the Google Reader interface. It's just so and the fonts. Oh man, I'm you know I'm not like one of these font freaks where I have like a thousand fonts on my computer and I use three of them, but I'm like obsessed with collecting fonts. That's not me, but I am very very particular when it comes to the reading experience, and I just can't I can't abide the the Google environment. I love NetNewsWire and and most Mac apps because you can customize the fonts that you see things in. You can create that user experience. And, you know, people like my, my friend John Gruber, DaringFireball.net, you know, he's got the, the, the Slate Gray site with the 11 point for Dana text that he's had since, you know, since the dawn of time. And it's, it's unreadable to me. I love, I love what he writes, but I have to use the readability bookmarklet uh, in order to make it, you know, readable. And I just, I feel like that's what I want to do whenever I see, you know, Google Reader. I can't, I can't abide. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I was perfectly happy with Google Reader. And since I've got this iPad, I've been using NetNewsWire on the iPad. And I'm starting to kind of dig NetNewsWire again. You know, it's I, a used, great app. I, I used to use it. And you know what turned me off of it was um, it, it would open. I could not figure out for the life of me how to get it to open the articles in Safari in separate tabs. And it would open that I'd have 20 versions of the browser running. Because I don't like to read the articles in NetNewsWire like right. you. I use, you know, I use uh, scripting. There's a lot of stuff I use that Safari does that no other browser does. So I want to read in, in Safari. And uh, so it, eventually I just said, heck with it. And that's why I went over to choose the um, Google Reader because it's in Safari. And then I've got all the Safari tools available to me. But I was just thinking the other day as I was going through my news on my iPad that, you know, I think I need to go back and take another look at NetNewsWire on the Mac because I'm starting to kind of dig this. Well, you know, and, and you actually make, you make somewhat of a case, or at least I'm thinking that there is a case for NetNewsWire for the people who, like me, don't, you know, think that, think that Daring Fireball is unreadable. You know, I, I still open it and I still read the site and I still click the readability, you know, bookmarklet there. Uh, but, you know, at least I'm giving the site a chance. I'm not reading it in, in the newsreader. And I think, you know, I think what you say is very true in that, you can use something on an iPad and then you'll realize, well, this isn't half bad. Maybe I can, maybe I can use this on the Mac too. And I'm actually curious to, to see how, uh, how that effect works. Is there a halo effect working in the opposite direction rather than, you know, Mac users are going to get an iPad or an iPhone. What if, does it work? Does it work in reverse from the iPad to the iPhone or to the Mac? I think the answer is probably yes. And it may even be yes from a software standpoint too. Although, you know, I have to admit, I I don't always go to the site. I I am a big fan of Instapaper and a lot of articles, especially on the iPad. uh, You know, it's so easy in in NetNewsWire to send an article to Instapaper. I mean, when I subscribe to Foreign Affairs and they have these huge long articles that are just great to read. But, um, you know, you hit the Instapaper clip and you've got that thing, you know, right where you are, no matter where you are, even if you don't have a connection. I'm on a Wi-Fi iPad. So it's great to, to be able to do it. And it's like reading a book, you know, when you put them in the Instapaper. It's a great service. Yeah, Instapaper's, uh, Instapaper's really, really useful. And I think its value quadrupled when the iPad came out. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's my killer app on the iPad, I think. Right. You know? 
So we want to talk to Dan a lot about blogging because that's one of his main gigs. But before we do that, let's take a break and thank one of our sponsors, Smile on My Mac. And we've gotten a lot of requests from listeners about talking about some of the differences between Text Expander version 2 and Text Expander version 3, which is their latest release. I love Text Expander 3. I don't know how I got by without Text Expander 3, and I really love Text Expander 2. I love Text Expander 3 more. I figured you you did. No, it's a, it's an independent app now, so it doesn't run out of the preference pane, uh, which allows you to resize the window, which is kind of nice. And uh, w- it has all sorts of new features. I mean, you can fill in blanks. You can love that one. Yeah, you can do all sorts of things. One of my favorite features with the new version is to fix the last expanded snippet. Uh, I had a little mistake in my signature, and I was li- I was going through and like fixing it every time I expanded it because I was just too lazy to go to the preference pane, get to that, find the signature, find that, and go. You know. It, once you've got this, it doesn't matter. When you see a mistake in your snippet, you can go immediately, go back. It'll take you right to that snippet. You can correct it right there and fix it and be on your way. That's a yeah, that is a, that is a really cool feature because how many times do you have an error in a snippet and you just go back and you manually change it because you're you're in the moment right there and you think every time, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back and do that later. I'm going to go back and do that in a minute, and, and you never do. You have to manually change it like 45 times before you actually think to go back and and go into that preference pane and change it. I think Text Expander is a much more powerful app than a preference pane would le- lead you to think that it is. So I'm really happy that it's in its own standalone app. Yeah. Um, and I'm one of the features that I am using most about Text Expander is they also have options now. Um, I have this horrible issue of double capsing at the start of a sentence. I don't quite let go of the shift key fast enough, and I end up with double caps. Text Expander has a, a neat little box that you can check that will automatically fix all of those double capitalizations at the start of a sentence. Or if you have the opposite problem and you don't always hit the shift key to capitalize at the beginning of a new sentence, it also has that feature as well. So those are just a few of the new features uh, in Text Expander 3. If you liked 2, you're really going to like what they've got going on with 3. Uh, it is a reduced price for an upgrade. Um, and as always, with all of the Smile on My Mac products, you can try before you buy. Yeah, so it's $35 for a full license, $15 for an upgrade. Uh, the day they they went public with it, I had my credit card out and bought my upgrade. I think it's a great app. Uh, you can find all of Smile on My Mac's great software, including Text Expander, PDF Pen, PDF Pen Pro, Disk Label, and all of their other software over at Smile on My Mac. And thanks to Smile on My Mac for helping us uh, get this podcast out the door. Um, uh, what do you use to write your blog posts? I mean, what do you do your text editing in? I do, I, I for every single thing that I create from, uh, if there's text involved, so this would include code, this would include, you know, writing writing up something for HiveLogic, this would include pretty much anything that I do that has to do with you know, typing text into a window, I use TextMate for. That's by MacroMates. A lot of people are upset because the guy who did it has been talking about version 2 for, you know, the last uh, several years and hasn't released it. But I actually think the version that we have today is just fine. Uh, it does everything that I need and, and a whole lot more. Uh, but it's it's a great app. I really do use it for everything. The, the one – and people are saying – 
Dan, I assume you would have just automatically used BB Edit. Why don't you use BB Edit? I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I love BB Edit. Um, gosh, I think I started using, I can't even remember what version I started using BB Edit, but it was probably back, you know, really, gosh, so long ago. I can't even, I can't even place it. Um, but BB Edit has, I've used for so many years. And the reason I kept using it was because I just loved that it, it would do the things that you wanted it to do without you having to tell it how to do them. Uh, it's a great editor. And this is back when my, you know, before I, uh, my prescription got worse as I got a little bit older and I was in, you know, in my twenties and I could use like nine point font and, and write code for 10 hours at a time, uh, without eye strain. But, you know, it's, here's the reason I stopped using it. Plain and simple. When I started doing Rails development, it became critical to not have uh, one file open at a time or have multiple windows open at a time, but to use the uh, what what is implemented, unfortunately, uh, by default as a drawer in TextMate. But to use the to use the drawer to have all of your files open at one time, and uh, you can essentially have as many open as as you want, and you have this really handy little drawer with little little toggles that let you navigate your uh, your entire mini file structure. Well, you're going to say, well, BB Edit does that, right? Well, it has the notion of a project that you have to go in and create this project file and tell it, uh, these are the files, these are the folders, this is how you should uh, be organized. Whereas TextMate, you can have it open a folder. So instead of doing file open file name from the menu, you would just pick a folder from the menu and hit open and boom, right there it recognizes, oh, you want to open this whole thing. And people have said, oh, well, you can accomplish the same thing in BB Edit by just dragging the folder over the BB Edit icon. I don't want to drag a folder over the BB Edit icon. I want to do file open or I want to go to the file menu and uh, and and say open recent and see the folders listed rather than uh, just a bunch of files in there. That's the way that I work. And as a result, I, I completely stopped using BB Edit. So they could win me back pretty easily. Uh, if they were to add that feature, but they have yet to to add that feature. Um, there's also a whole lot of other things that TextMate will do in a very simple, very programmatic, friendly kind of way, like open and closing tags, and you know, as you type HTML and, and things like that. Uh, but I, I really do like all of the themes that are available for TextMate. There are a lot of people that have come out with custom themes, and you know, I, I wouldn't call them skins, but things that handle the highlighting of text and code really effectively and, and really nicely, and they're easily customizable. Um, the whole thing is heavily scriptable, so if you like, you know, if, if you're into doing that kind of thing, you can you can do it pretty easily in, in TextMate. But that's anything that I do from typing text to code, I do all, all right there. And do you write in HTML or Markdown or... Uh, no, as uh, just just to spite John Gruber, I will never use Markdown for anything. Uh, I will always use TextMate, uh, Textile rather. Um, it's just uh, just just to make a point. No, I, I actually I've been using text. I've been using Textile for so long. I just think that way. Um, I think in in Textile, and although Markdown and Textile have a lot of similarities, I realize Markdown is is the preferred uh, one to use these days. I think it's it's. Uh, a great implementation, and John did a really awesome job uh, creating it. So, you know, I would say I would say I do things in textile, but anything that I use typically is going to be Markdown friendly uh, for the most part. Um, 
but I, I think I think primarily I'm using you know I I will write HTML if I am building a, a one-off site where it's just you know a, a quick little uh, a quick little simple page, but uh, I'll use Textile or Markdown mostly Textile for everything else. Yeah, I write generally in Markdown. And uh, I use notational velocity, which is really great for just tech stuff. And oh, yeah. I, I think in Markdown when I when I write web stuff, so it's easy for me to bring that in. Since I publish my uh, Max Sparky site on Squarespace, it, they have actually a Markdown input for the text, so I can literally block and copy and post. Yeah, in in like for example, in the Rails CMS that uh, that we built for the five by five TV site and all all the posts, we support you know. Plain text, HTML, Markdown, and and textile, so it's easy to switch between them, and uh, you know at will. Andy, what do you uh, do your blog posts in? Uh, you know, I've tried, I've tried Mars Edit for a while, um, but I have not tried the most recent version, so I do want to try that again. I'm actually, I'm just writing them in so infrequently blog. I'm, I'm writing them right in WordPress, but that's it's not working well. So that's I'm curious to come up with something else. So I'm I'm very interested in everyone else's ideas. Do they have an autosave in that these days? Like if you're typing, does yeah, it autosave? I think it does. I think it does. Probably not as frequently as I would like. But if I'm doing anything, I, my blog posts typically when I do write them, and perhaps this is why they're so few and far between, are, are like mini novels sometimes. So uh, any any major writing I'll usually do in, in some kind of word processor and then cut and paste and, and edit, and who knows, maybe I'll do something with it later. But... Uh, which kind of brings me to another question: When you're when you're doing any kind of major writing, and I don't know how much that is, um, are, are you still using these tools? Or are you going into something more like a Scrivener or a Pages, or what do you use for more word processing? You know, every, I try to do everything uh, actually still in in just a plain text editor, TextMate. If I need to do something where fonts are important. Uh, and and I can't do that as a HTML and then create a PDF from that from a browser or something uh, because I'm just generally so much faster, even if it's just raw HTML. I mean, I've been writing HTML for I don't know how many years. Uh, I think the first web page I wrote was probably back in 93 or 4. So for me, writing in HTML is, is frequently easier than writing in Markdown or Textile. Uh, but... You know that said, if I if I need to do something where it's truly going to be a word processing application, where you know I need to do deep things like pagination or important things with fonts and and things like that, uh, then I I use Pages. I've stopped using Microsoft uh, Office a number of years ago when Apple came out with uh, with Pages, and I I just made it I made up my mind at that time that. You know, the fewer Microsoft products uh, that I would need to have, uh, really the better. I don't have it out for Microsoft. I don't dislike Microsoft at all. Uh, but I just feel like, for me, the, the more things I can get from a single vendor that I rely on creating a consistent inter- interface and user experience for me, the more I'm going to lean on th- those applications. And I think everybody pretty much agrees that Keynote is the best presentation uh, app around. So when I have to do that, I'll use Keynote. But why not? Why not use Pages? My wife spent many years in the corporate world, uh, you know, living in Word and FrameMaker. Uh, she's a technical writer, technical editor, and for her, she just she she can use Pages just fine. But I think I think because of her learned skill set, she still prefers things like Microsoft Word. For me, I just said, well, I'll just do it the Pages way, and uh, and you know, but these days I'm not really creating. 
complicated documents uh, anymore uh, outside of the scope of, of things I can do in HTML. Are you, are you finding that you're having any difficulties with that in terms of a compatibility perspective with um, consulting or collaborating or sending in and out documents to others? Or are you just doing everything kind of as PDFs now? Because that's I, I would love to get rid of Microsoft products as well. Unfortunately, sure. with the day job, that's, that's what everybody expects everything to be in. Yeah, if you're, I'm I'm lucky in that I am not doing a whole lot of, uh, doc, you know, document collaboration with other people right now uh, these days. But you know, it's true. Every time you open up a, a document created somewhere else, Pages gives you that dialogue saying, you know, do you want to review all of the things that are not working here? And I never do. Uh, but if I was trading documents with people back and forth. For sure, I would definitely need to use Word and uh, sending things out, being being using pages uh, to create things that you know are going to be read either in Microsoft Word or as a PDF file. You're home free, but if you are going to be trading things back and forth, yeah, you kind of I can kind of see where you would you would need Word, especially if you do have that uh, that day job where it's expected that you're not only going to be collaborating, but that's that's an integral part of what you do. You know, the way you sum, uh, summed up your feelings towards Microsoft, I think we're good. I, I'm kind of the same way. I don't have anything against them, but I just don't really like the way that the Microsoft Office product tries to go its own. It doesn't follow any of the normal conventions. Right. And, you know, like even just like for recent documents, they don't plug into the OS X architecture and all these things where I normally can access something very quickly. In Microsoft Word, it just takes longer. And um, I know that they're talking about um, getting more integration with OS X with the next version. I hope they really take that seriously because uh, I don't have anything necessarily against it, but I prefer to use Pages as well when I can. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know you hit the nail right on the head. They, they really do have their own way of doing things, and I think that in a, in some ways it's almost like a sticking point for them. Well, we we know how to do this too, and we're gonna we're gonna show you Mac people that we know what we're doing too, and and we're gonna give you this great Mac app, and it's gonna work the way we think it should work. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe I'm reading into that uh, a little bit, but. You know, they they always have to do, you know, this whole ribbon thing that they're doing with the with the new version. I don't want a ribbon. You know, give me give me icons that make sense, use text as much as possible, put everything up in the menu where we expect it to be on the Mac, and uh and just give us something that works and that's fast and that opens Word documents. You know, they yeah. they, they you know, give give me Microsoft Word version two or six on the Mac and make it really fast, and that's all I want, you know. I think the majority of the world does not use you know that they don't use they're using 5 to 10% of the capabilities of what Microsoft Word for example can offer them they they generally speaking they they don't here's the thing they don't want Microsoft works or or whatever that junior mm. you know you know they don't want that they want word but they want word that's 10 times faster and has you know one tenth of the features and I'll tell you what, Microsoft should have come out with two versions of Word, one with 100 features and one with just the 10 that everybody else uses instead of splintering their operating system so many times. Yeah, and I think that's I – bet, I bet there's people up at the Mac Business Unit in Redmond who would, you know, who would love to be able to break away from Word for Windows and, and dump a bunch of those features. I'm sure there's people on that team that would like nothing better, but I'm also sure that – 
that's their mandate that I, I everything right. that's on Windows has to be on this. And and that's and for the what, record. I mean, the Mac business unit up there, they're 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 great people and they're very very talented developers. But I think you're right. I think they are they they have a certain thing that they're expected to do and they're they're doing it. Yeah. Okay. So now, so I imagine you're writing your code in TextMate as well. Oh yeah, and I want to add that I use the the only plugin. I have a theory about plugins and customizations, which I'll share with you in a second. But before I do that, the one plugin, the only plugin that I use in TextMate is something called Missing Drawer. And that's because the standard uh, default installation of TextMate, I mentioned when it shows you those documents and things, it, it has one of the, yeah, I think drawers are, were a great idea, but I thought their implementation in Mac OS X, it was, was weird. Um, and I don't, I don't really like drawers. And yes, I'm guilty of using a drawer. I wrote uh, the the app, the the one Mac app that I've written called the Encoder. Uh, does use a drawer, so uh, you know. But I I wouldn't do that now. But I think once people realized that drawers were kind of weird, uh, they stopped using them so much. Well, because it's been so long since we've had a new version of TextMate, it does use a drawer by default to display that list of uh, files and folders that hierarchy. Uh, the missing drawer plugin makes it look, uh, it takes away the drawer part and just sort of extends the windows so you get nice square edges and it looks fully integrated and, and works a little bit better. So I highly, it's a free plugin. I highly recommend, uh, missing drawer if you're going to be using TextMate, uh, in that way. Yeah. I think, yeah. I use, I use TextMate for everything like that. Uh, you know, I, I've been playing, I used to program a lot when I was a kid and then, you know, you move on with life, but now I'm getting interested in it again. I've, read a couple books. I'm getting my uh, objective C chops up and I've been doing all the coding in Xcode. And, oh yeah. And, uh, it, which are pretty good tools there too, but you know, I'm, I'm very basic at this point. Well, you're doing, you're doing it right. And I, I think, I think the point is, you know, Apple gave, bestowed upon us these, uh, Xcode tools for a reason. They want us to use them and they've, they, the first versions of Xcode were pretty bad but they've come so far and they're great now uh, as far as as far as you know IDEs go um, Xcode is is one of the best ones around for sure and I think if I was doing Cocoa development uh, I, anytime I've done Cocoa development I have had to use Xcode to do it but it's been so long it's it, I have it installed but it's certainly not part of my workflow but if I was going to start doing iPhone iPad Cocoa apps today I know there are people who try to get away from using Xcode, but that's just use Xcode. So, what do you think? Are you gonna are you gonna do something for the iPad? You know, to be honest, I I don't know what to do. I, I certainly don't have the time for it right now. Uh, I would love to I would love to build uh, some iPad apps, and and my focus these days, uh, I would love to build them for kids because I think you know having having a young kid now and putting these apps, and I, I'm an avid avid uh, user of the Apple uh, store when it comes to, you know, finding good apps. And, and I really try every day to find an app or two that would be fun uh, for him to, to, to try. He loves, you know, he's two and a half, but he, you know, he does know how to use the iPad pretty much, pretty much as well as I do. And, you know, I, I, I really think that there are some great apps, but there aren't enough. So if I was going to do something, it would definitely be something I would want to do for, for kids in that there's this age group, uh, where there's, their apps are missing. Like you find tons and tons of apps that like, here's a, here's the shape of a circle. And when you touch it, the, the, the iPad says circle. 
you know, that's, that's really cool for like 30 seconds. Yeah. You know, but then the next, the next level app is like, spell the word xylophone. Well, he can't spell xylophone yet. Yeah. So that's only good for 30 seconds, but there's this big space in between where there are, we're starting to see more apps in there, but they're not, you know, like, like there's, oh, let me tell you about this one game. I don't even know the name of it. It's some kind of game with ants. Have you seen this on the iPad? It's some no. kind of an ant, ant game. And I'll see, I'll look it up while, while I talk. And this, this game, it's just kind of, it's, it's so complicated in that, you know, there's all these, it, basically the goal, the whole point of the game is that you're squashing and, and just, and, and destroying these ants and their anthills in, in strange ways by dropping rocks and little firecrackers and things. You know, that would be a great game for kids if it was a little less violent and a little more learning and a little bit more fun and like, not about destroying the ants, but maybe like, well, what if we give them food? What if we put the water over here? What if we give them, you know, and just interacting with them on a basic level, you know, my, my kid would love that, but there aren't, there aren't those kinds of folk. The focus is always, you know, win the game, beat the game. Like the Shrek, the Shrek driving game. That's a great game. He loves to watch that, but he can't play it. But I know if if it was simplified, he'd be able to play. So, in a long story short, I think there should be more more games for that. You know, maybe preschool and a little bit older age, and maybe some basic logic type yeah. puzzles. Yeah, I have to admit though, my eight year old and I have been having a great time uh, with Angry Birds. We almost have a daily, you know, Angry Birds session where we knock over <laughs> something. <laughs> So Dan, where do you where do you start? Obviously, Apple has pretty much thrown down the gauntlet of if you want to program for the iPad or the iPhone or the iPhone OS, essentially, this is how you get, you're going to do it. Because especially with the latest changes in iPhone, you know, 4.0, you're not going to be able to use some of these other methods that that developers have tried to use as workarounds. And right. you know, there's a whole other conversation to have as to right or wrong, and and what are the pros and cons of of that approach. But I get a question quite frequently from a lot of younger listeners, you know, kids who are in you know, even middle school and young high school kids now who want to program. And, and do you ever have any recommendations for them as to where do they start? Like how would they start programming on day one? They've never written a line of code before. Never written a line of code before, you know, but they think this is something they might want to get into, you know, where should they go? Yeah, and and they're they're younger. I think yeah, I think it's it's a great it's a great time today to be a software developer, to be even to be brand new to software development. I think it's a better time than ever. When when I was starting out, you know, my first computer experiences uh, was at summer camp when I was about ten years old. Uh, for whatever reason, like you know, they'd send you out with a kickball for like three or four hours, and then for some reason, this place maybe because it was on a on a college uh, campus, they take you into the computer lab and they're like, we're going to learn how to program computers for, you know, an hour and a half. And they, the, these guys who I'm assuming were like grad students or something were basically teaching us, you know, this is, this is a computer. This is, this is how a computer works. And now we're going to write some programs. And this, to give you, put this in perspective, this was like, like a TRS 80 and uh, an Apple II was like, Apple II's were like cutting edge, like they had them, you know, and they, this was like avant-garde. And the way that I learned was, was through this kind of formal instruction, like some, somebody who seemed very old to me at the time was probably, you know, 19 years old was teaching us, you know, 10 print and here type your name and it will put your name on the screen. 
I really do think that there's a lot of value in learning. I'm not sure that basic is the right language to learn anymore. There might be something else uh, that's better. But if it's possible to learn in some kind of, and I'm not, generally speaking, I'm not a, a big fan of learning things this way. I'm much more a fan of like getting a book and, and reading, you know, and, and hacking away at something until late at night. But I really do think that having some kind of formal instruction, even just, even if it's just an hour or two, even if it's just so that they know that there are people who are knowledgeable about this and other people who are their peers who are interested in it, I think it, it there becomes this little bit of community, even if it's a short-lived community of, you know, let's get started and learn something cool. And I think for people who are beyond that stage or for people who are self-learners, yeah, I really do. At the end of the day, I think there's a tremendous value in getting a good book that's at their level and learning that book and, you know, learning from that book and, and, you know, downloading code examples these days instead of typing them in manually. But, but learning, I also am a strong believer in, uh, in screencasts as a great way to learn. Um, not only because I produced a handful of them, but because I really do think there's something about, Watching somebody do something in this really compelling way, you know, seeing it demoed right in front of them here, here's this person and they're typing code into an editor just the same way that I would. And look, they did this really cool thing. And this tricky part, they didn't have to try and explain it in 10 pages of text. They just showed me they moved the mouse and I saw them move the mouse and they did this thing that gosh, would have been just so hard to explain otherwise. So I, you know, for me, especially when people are new to a topic, I think screencasts are something that are just invaluable ways of learning, even when you're an advanced, even when you're at an advanced level. You know, I think it's easier now than it used to be too, because when I started programming, I went from basic to assembly code, you know, oh, man. essentially what happened back then, because there wasn't really much in between. Right. And now coming back and learning it again, just for giggles. I mean, it's so much more powerful now, and it's so much easier. I I just can't get over how different it is, and and the tools. Like, I mean, Xcode is is fantastic. I mean, building your user interface, it just it's really quite incredible how far that has come. Oh yeah. Oh, it's called Pocket Ants. Pocket Ants. I'll Pocket talk. Ants. Okay, Dan is pretty much a, a full-time podcaster, so we want to want to get into a little bit of his podcast setup, and especially how it differs from ours. Uh, but before we do, let's take a quick break and thank our second sponsor of the show, 1Password. One 1Password One has uh, made a move to the other platform. Did you know that? You know, I got to admit, when I saw the announcement on their blog, I, I, I felt a little, I don't know. 1Password is just the perfect Mac app. It's kind of hard to envision it on Windows. But I guess we need to give the Windows brethren some love. Remember that quote when the Steve Jobs, someone asked why he put iTunes on Windows. He said, even a man in a desert deserves a glass of water once in a while. I do. That's probably very applicable to 1Password. Although I'm not really sure the iTunes is a glass of water in the Windows world, but I'll, I'll go ahead and use it anyway. I, I've already installed it. I have a Windows PC at work, and uh, I put the, bat, the beta in. It doesn't work with all the browsers yet, and they're still getting everything sorted out. And I'm not syncing my entire database over because I don't really want all of my database on my work computer. But uh, there are some items that I need to have repeated passwords on on the Office PC. And I am so pleased to see the one password icon show up on my PC now. It just kind of makes you feel a little bit at home. Yeah, it does. It does. So one password is is really 
working to be your password manager everywhere. They've they've got great solutions for the Mac. They're working on the uh, Chrome browser extension for 1Password. They've already got a couple of, of pre-release builds out there, and I know that they're quickly expanding upon that. You've got a great 1Password application for your iPhone, a great application for the iPad, which is just one of the most gorgeous applications and UIs I've ever seen on the iPad. The 1Password Pro app in the App Store is a hybrid app. It does both the iPhone and the iPod. You can also have 1Password Anywhere, which is one of, I think, one of the more underutilized features of 1Password, where you can sync your keychain via Dropbox or anywhere else, and you can um, right-click and you can open up that package contents and see all of your passwords in a secure web browser. Um, and they've also got the bookmarklet, which is one of the things that I use most often on my iPad because Safari on the iPad is really about as close. It, it's night and day from Safari on the iPhone, and it is really, really close to the Safari desktop experience. And I find that I'm really missing that little 1Password button up in the top of my Safari on the iPad. Uh, but 1Password also has a bookmarklet that you can create to put in some or all of your frequently used passwords into this bookmarklet. You just go up to your, your favorites folder, you hit the 1Password bookmarklet, a little box pops open on top of the application that you're in, and you, you enter a password and you, you click what you want it to autofill, and boom, almost just like 1Password works natively on the Mac, uh, through this Java bookmarklet, it will work on the iPad, and it is just a seamless experience that I, I really am enjoying 1Password on the iPad. But they also have their own built-in browser experience if you don't want to use the bookmarklet option like I do. Yeah, you can log in from the app as well. But it's nice using the bookmarklet because then you've got all the other pieces of Safari and your other bookmarks and everything else available to you. So, uh, once again, we'd like to thank Agile Web Solutions and 1Password for sponsoring the podcast. You can get it over at uh, Agile Web Solutions or just onepassword.com. A 1Password single license is $39.95, and you can license up to five people in your family for $69.95. But if you click on the link in our show notes, you can also get a 20% discount on 1Password. That's right. You can get a discount through Mac Power Users. So head over to MacPowerUsers.com and click the link there. So what about your podcasting workflows, Dan? Well, you know, that to me these days, because that's what I'm working on, that's the main thing that, that I focus on many, many hours a day, many, most, most days of the week. Um, you know, when I first started out podcasting and, and let me say, if you're, if you're thinking about, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting into podcasting, you don't need to replicate this setup. There are, there are much simpler ways to get into this. And I think that the setup that I have, Although it's certainly not as advanced as most uh, even basic you know music studios and recording studios would be it's it's much more advanced than it needs to be if you're just thinking about sitting down and and doing a show like like most people do. The fact is you know i doing i think currently we're doing like seven or or so shows we're adding more shows. I do this probably fifty to sixty hours a week so you know, keep that in mind when I tell you about the, the software and the things that, that I use. Um, from the from the software standpoint, uh, the primary thing, the primary app that I use for recording the audio of the shows is Apple's Logic. Um, 
I don't use the full-blown Logic Pro. I use Logic Express. Pro includes a lot of additional applications and software uh, and things that I just don't need. Um, Express, the actual version of Logic that you get in Express and Pro is essentially the same app. It can do all the same things. It's just add-ins, plugins, and and a component software that that you get with Pro, which are very useful if you're doing a lot of audio engineering stuff. But it's a little bit beyond uh, where where I live as far as what I'm doing. But what I really like about Logic, um, it makes it very easy for you to edit multiple tracks, move things around. Uh, and there are a handful of tools that you can use to, you know, to to modify the sound. So let's say let's say I'm recording this podcast and I have the three of us on it, and maybe Katie's levels are a little bit higher. Uh, than than yours, I could very easily adjust her levels without affecting you know yours or mine in a in a much more robust and um, and controlled way than something like GarageBand, uh, which is obviously free, might uh, might give you. So you know it, it it's simple enough to use for somebody who doesn't want to invest a lot of time learning the ins and outs of it, uh, but. It does have a ton of features if you want to use them. They stay out of your way when you don't. And I had never, I didn't have any formal instruction in, in Logic. I didn't buy a book or anything. I just bought the application and, uh, and spent some time. Uh, you know, I read, they have a very good introductory guide that really does teach you, you know, probably 75% of what you'd need to know to do what I'm doing. And the rest of the 25% just came from experimentation with it. Um, one of the neat things I would recommend, though, if you do that, especially if you're recording multiple tracks, is you can you can save you can create a template just like you could in Microsoft Word or any other app that allows you to create that. You cre- you know I'll create a template. The template will have already mapped out all of the different tracks that I'm going to record and their mappings to the hardware device that that I use. Uh, and uh, you know the the intro music and outro music can be dropped in ahead of time. And all of that just just sits there and it's ready to go so that when you pick a new template, everything's there. You just basically hit the record button and you're good to go even with multiple multiple tracks. So uh, I, I really like Logic Pro. I don't really use any other tools to edit the audio or process the audio or anything like that. It has a built-in MP3 uh, encoder, so I will... You know, I will output it as or what they call in in the audio industry when you're exporting a file. They'll call it bouncing a file. I'll bounce it to MP3. The uh, the CMS that we've built handles all of the things uh, with the podcast files themselves, such as doing all the ID3 tagging, adding the graphic images, uh, things like that. It it does all of that. So there's no additional work that I need to do. And when I export that MP3, it's just a straight export. I don't even bother to put any data in there. And then when I upload it, the CMS will say, oh, here's the title of your podcast. I'm going to add that. Oh, here's your copyright statement. I'll go ahead and put that in. Oh, here's your cover art for this podcast. I'll add it to the file. And all of those things are automatic. Um, and so that saves a lot of time and a lot of detail work. And it also makes it so that if and when I ever can find an intern to help that you know, it'll make their job easier too. As far as like the video, we do a lot of uh, a lot of live streaming and video stuff. Um, there's an app there, um, an amazing app called Wirecast. It's by a company uh, called Telestream. I think they're Telestream.net, 
And Wirecast is very cool in that it allows you to have multiple video sources, um, you know, integrated and you can switch. It's basically like a, a small TV studio in a box. Uh, it runs, it's, it's both Mac and PC. Of course, I'm using the Mac version. And it's, it really is great. You, you are allowed, you know, it enables you to pick all of these different video feeds. You can do overlays. You can do all this stuff. And the best part about it is that it has the built in streaming stuff so that it will handle converting your live feed into whether it's flash or quick, quick time or whatever media format that you want and send it out to popular services like QuickTime's uh, streaming server or Justin TV or Ustream or Livestream or whatever streaming service you want to use for your live video. Uh, so you can basically, you know, sit in your, in your office or in your own home studio uh, and use Wirecast and create very professional live uh, video streams. It also handles recording. So I'll record the video streams while I'm streaming them out. You need you need a decent CPU to do this, but I'll do you know I'll save the recording as well so that I'll have both the live stream, the audio, the, you know, the video recorded with the audio in it, and then completely independent of that, I'm recording the live audio uh, in in Logic itself. Um, now, if I'm just doing a one-off recording. I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm just, let's just say I'm doing just an intro or outro. Or, uh, if, for example, I'm doing a voiceover for, uh, you know, or a narration for something, then, I, then I, I generally won't use logic for that. Um, I'll use a, a, a tool that's, uh, called Sound Studio, uh, version 3.6 is the current version. Uh, and it, this is by a company called Freeverse. Um, so uh, that is that is very. It's a very simple uh, one-track recorder type thing, and uh, it's it's just very lightweight, very simple. And I will generally use that uh, to record if I'm just doing a one-off thing. But I found that less and less I'm I'm using I'm using it less and less, and I'm using uh, I'm using Logic uh, more and more now. But I think that's it from the software standpoint as far as the doing doing the podcasts. And then in terms of, you know, hosting, that's all done through your, your own web host and your own CMS solution. And, and yeah, we don't, we don't use anything else. Uh, I've been, I've been building content management systems too long to not build something for this. I actually started trying to customize a couple other solutions. I, I, I really didn't want to build my own, to be honest. I really didn't. Uh, I tried using WordPress and found that for for some of the things that I wanted to do, which are probably corner and, and edge case kind of things, uh, but for example, I wanted each podcast, each show that we do, to have its own little mini website within the five, main five by five site. I, I did. I wanted them to appear that although they're together, they really are standalone shows. They really are standalone broadcasts. And yes, we bring them together. They're in one place. But I wanted to be able to do things like provide a unified feed of everything so that all of the shows, if you if if you're if you're lazy and you're in love with five by five, you have one thing to subscribe to and every single show that comes out will show up right there. I said we need to have that. But at the same time, I wanted each of their own each each show itself to have its own RSS feed. But there's a lot of metadata that's involved there. For example, 
you know, the hosts of the dev show are different from the hosts of the conversation. So how do you, how do you do that? There were a lot of things that I found that yes, it could be done, uh, with expression engine or, or, you know, or something else, but there was going to be a lot of additional coding involved. And I said, well, if I'm going to do additional coding, I really want it to be in my language of choice, which is rails and Ruby and rails. And, Really, I wasn't in love with any of the systems that were out there for that. And I said, you know, this is something very specific. This is something that really needs to work a certain way. But it doesn't have a ton of stuff that it needs to do. So I wrote it. And it really didn't take me very long to write it. And I got some help from one of my my co-hosts on the Ruby Show and the Dev Show. His name is Jason Cipher. And uh, he helped with a bunch of uh, a bunch of the features once the main system was built out. And together, we put together a really cool system that does just the things that that we needed to do and what's great about it is because it is rails uh and it is our own system if we want something to be different or work a different way uh, we can do that but the system of course as i mentioned handles all of the mp3 tagging it handles the uploads um i actually now have it uh handling all the uploads for the the transcripts that we're having done for the shows. You can even upload the videos that we do now right in the CMS. It's not a separate FTP thing anymore. So, you know, that's, that's the nice thing of having your own thing is you say, Oh, we better start offering video and you can just start offering video and you just, you just, you know, add a widget and there it is. It works. So that's, that's what we're doing. And knowing that it does it in a consistent way for all the shows is really great. Well, also, you know, you, you paid for your shoes programming this yeah. stuff, so you probably could do a better job than a generic tool out there. Well, maybe. I think, you know, I think these days the generic tools are better and better, and people don't need to feel like, you know, for example, there there's a really cool podcasting add-on for WordPress that, you know, if if we weren't doing a lot of the things that we were doing that might have worked just fine. But, again, you know, people who are starting out, they don't need to... They don't need to try to. They don't need to sit down. And, I mean, people. And this is the thing I see all the time with with new developers or young developers. They always set, set out and say, "I'm going to build the best CMS ever," even when they're re- you know it might be a good learning experience, but treat it as a learning experience. Say, "I'm going to do this to learn." You know, I'm not doing this to make money. I'm not going to release this to the world, and I'm going to have a hundred thousand users. I mean, sure they might, but I think. You know, approach things for the sake of learning just just for that. Just say, I just want to learn. I'm going to build something. It's going to be neat. It'll work for me. And I think uh, I, I think generally, though, these days, if there's something that somebody else has built and there's a community around it and it's especially if it's affordable, you know, try that. Try that first and see if it works. I, I probably spent the better part of a week looking at things like Expression Engine and Drupal and other other things to see if they would do what I needed them to do and where that line was between how, how hard is it going to be for me to customize this versus just write my own thing. And at the end of the day, writing my own thing was about the same or maybe even a little bit easier than some of the customizations that I was needing to do. So I said, well, I'll just, I'll just do that. So I know David is really itching to ask Dan about his Palm Pre experience, but before we talk about his mobile devices, we do need to thank one last sponsor for the day, and that is Fuse Meeting. We're real excited to have Fuse Meeting as one of our new sponsors. They've got a great service where you can have an online meeting, and if you do many of these online meetings, you know that one of the big problems is the data sharing. You know, if you start throwing big files with videos or PowerPoints around, uh, a lot of times 
the meeting can be impacted because not everybody has the same ability to get the data. So you've got someone uploading it, then someone on the other end downloading it. It starts to slow things down. Fuse Meeting came up with a great idea, and that is they're hosting the data. So if you're going to run a Fuse Meeting, you can upload your high-definition video and your PowerPoint and pictures and mock-ups to their server before the meeting starts. And then once the meeting starts, everything is coming from one place and everything works great. Yeah, Fuse Meeting is also unique in that not only can you do all of the things you would expect to, such as share content, share your desktop, um, chat, or have audio uh, conversations with the participant of your meetings, but you can also have mobile meetings. So they have an iPhone and a BlackBerry uh, app that you can use to get the f- almost full Fuse Meeting experience on your mobile device. Of course, if it works on the iPhone, it's going to work in that scaled-up mode on the iPad. David and I have, have tested this out, and it's a it's really a great experience, especially if you're stuck and you still need to be able to join the meeting. You can at least be involved in the meeting and the conversation even when you're on the go. Yeah, I'm really excited about Fuse Meeting. If you go ahead and try it out at fusemeeting.com slash Mac, that's a slash M-A-C, uh, and you you buy into the system, you get a $25 iTunes gift certificate. But either way, you get a 30-day free trial. So just go check it out. After your free trial, if you decide that you like Fuse Meeting and you want to keep it up, it's only $29 a month compared to the competition that is around $50 a month. And let me tell you, as someone who has traveled for far too many meetings that I really didn't need to attend in person, even if you only use this product a couple of times a year, you're going to save yourself a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of frustration by using Fuse Meeting as compared to actually traveling for your business meetings. You know, it's really a great product for creative professionals, but I think it's good in business in general. I've got a case I'm working on right now where we have a bunch of video footage and I've got expert witnesses all over the place, and I'm going to be uploading some of that so we can go over it and it'll save a lot of us time. I mean, just to drive from Los Angeles to Orange County where I am, that could be a couple hours with traffic. So uh, this could pay for itself real quickly at just $29 a month and uh, check it out. It's at fusemeeting.com slash Mac. And thank you fuse meeting for sponsoring the Mac power users. Okay. So now I got to hear about this Palm pre. <laughs> oh, sure. And are, do you have any regrets now that, that Palm is, has been, bought or is in the process of being bought by HP? Well, yeah, that's a fair question. Um, I'll, I'll answer that one first. I don't. No, not not at all because I don't – and maybe this this is weird. I, I don't feel like – yeah, a phone is not like a car. You know, I, I, I drive a Honda and part of the reason that I bought a Honda is because I know that anywhere I live in this country – I can go to a Honda dealership and get it fixed or, you know, get somebody who knows how to work on it pretty easily, get parts for it. And because it has this track record of being, you know, reliable and and, and safe, you know, that's why you, that's why you buy a car. But a phone is something that you typically have only for a short period of time, especially a smartphone and especially these days. Uh, you know, I... I really don't think it's a big deal that that Palm got bought by HP from the standpoint of my expectations from the phone. You know, when you buy a device like a phone, it's it's I think of it as just being a it's almost like to me like a mouse. You know, I've got I've got this mouse here on my desk. As long as it does the things that I bought it to do when I bought it, I'm happy with it. I don't expect that in 6 months 
they're going to come out with this amazing new thing that also, oh, now your mouse can also do this. No, it's a mouse. It does these five things in a very straightforward way, and that's good enough for me. And if I want a mouse that does five more things or things differently, well, you know, I'll go buy that mouse. And that's the way I think of a phone. I don't really think of it in a way. Yes, it is a software platform. There are apps for it, but that's not why I bought this phone. I bought this phone because I wanted to be on Verizon because I think AT&T's network right now is is not where it needs to be and where I live at least anyway. And I wanted to I wanted to get a smartphone that was going to be on the Verizon network. And right now when I needed to make the change, that was not the iPhone. I wish I wish that the iPhone was on Verizon uh because I think that would that would be great. I think uh, there are a lot of people who I know who love Verizon who would just never switch to AT&T for good reason. And those people should have a chance to use the iPhone. I think that'll happen eventually. Uh, but I think, I think now that aside, I think the Palm Pre is a great device. I think there are a lot of things that it gets right. And I think there are a handful of things that it doesn't get right or where it lags behind uh, you know, the iPhone. But overall, I really do like the phone. I got my wife, uh, uh, the, uh, they call it the Pixie. It's like the, the smaller version of the Palm Pre. And she's never had a smartphone uh, before she's used the iPhone that I've had and, and knows it knows it well. But, you know, she's content with it. It, it. it takes pictures. It, you know, it rings when she gets a call. She can text on it when she needs to, pr- primarily to me. And, you know, they're, they're great phones. I don't expect a lot out of it. I was using very, very few of the features that the iPhone actually has. Uh, so for me, it didn't really matter much. And it has this one amazing killer feature, which is now free, by the way, uh, which is absolutely amazing. And that is it can become a Wi-Fi hotspot uh, for up to five devices. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And it, there's no right now anyway that it doesn't cost any extra. So at any given moment, I can I can uh, launch the little Wi-Fi app and turn it on and five people or five devices rather can be on the 3G connection on that phone and it's 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 pretty darn cool and that that meant that i could buy the wi-fi uh ipad and still use it pretty much anywhere i wanted to as long as my phone was with me which it usually is but the things that i expect out of a phone are i want i want to have uh i want to have the phone ring when i get a call which it didn't always do for me under at&t i want to not drop calls which happened all the time on at&t and uh and you know if i can do a couple other things like SMS pictures or or send texts, uh, that's fine. I, I probably launch the mobile browser, you know, once a week. Uh, you know, those other things, having a robust app store, was really just not that important to me on a phone. That's you know, when I'm when I'm out and about, I'm, I'm basically a, a a hermit, David. I'm basically a hermit, <laughs> and the only time that I'm out, I'm running around with my two and a half year old, and it, you know, I, I'm not using a phone when I do that. You know. So. For me, I've spent, if I had all the time back that I've spent over the years trying to make, you know, insert device work with insert computer, uh, I would really appreciate to get that time back. And that's the, one of the reasons I, I'm a big fan of the iPhone is, you know, that I've got the Apple computer, I've got the Apple phone. Generally things just work. I don't have to think about it. But I think, um, for instance, the way Palm handles the multitasking with the cards, that seems to me so much more intuitive. Than what I've seen so far of Apple's solution, and maybe when yeah. I, you know, they release the new operating system, I'll I'll change my mind. But 
it just the way Palm did it seems to me to make sense. And I'm not sure it entirely makes sense yet with the iPhone, but I, I haven't had my hands on it yet either. Well, the card thing is genius. It really is. It uses gestures in a very intuitive way. It allows you to switch apps around like like instantaneously. And something that a lot of people don't talk about uh, as, as much as they should, and that is the notification system that they have on the Palm. I mean, both the multitasking implementation and the notification system are, are hands down the best thing in the mobile business right now. There isn't There isn't another phone platform that does them as well as the way that uh, WebOS on the Palm has has implemented them, I, I I applaud those guys. It's a very very creative solution, and you know people. I've the, the negative thing that I've heard about it. Some people have said that oh well, you know gestures aren't aren't intuitive if you don't know them. How are you switching apps? You're absolutely right. You need to know that you need to flick your finger up to launch the cards and move them left and right to pick the one you want. If if you know what that is, if you just heard me say that, now you you know how to do it. And that's the thing is that it, it, it the implementation is so great. I have since, you know, we still have an iPhone. I didn't throw it in the trash or anything. Uh, it's not connected to AT&T anymore. But, uh, you know, I still have an iPhone, a second-gen iPhone. And going back to the iPhone, I, I feel like, man... I, how was I using this thing without this multitasking and this notification that pops up and takes over the whole screen? It just seems weird. You know, I, I haven't really found, I still, I still feel like we need multitasking, uh, proper on the iPad, uh, because there are times when I would just love to run something like Pandora and, and have that continue to play music when I go back to checking email or browsing or net newswire or whatever. Uh, we need that kind of capability especially on the iPad. But, you know, here I'm saying on the one hand, when I'm running around, I'm with my kid, I don't need all this stuff on the phone. But even those little things like switching back and forth between, you know, sending an SMS and making a phone call, uh, and, and or, or if you do want to launch the web browser, being able to keep those things running and go back and forth to them very quickly, the Palm implementation is just outstanding. So I really get, really get why HP wanted to buy them. Yeah, well, I hope they um, they continue to develop WebOS. I I imagine we're going to see some interesting tablets coming out of HP soon. Right. Um. So so Dan, what software do you use to make the Palm Pre work with your uh, with your Apple system? It you know, there's really only work one with iTunes anymore, right? No, they they've they've gotten rid of that, and uh, it's you know th- again, I have an iPod. So for me, when I'm I'm listening to music, I'm not I don't do a ton uh well for the record I, I listen to very little music when i do listen to things it's usually uh usually podcasts of course uh so for me getting getting podcasts onto the palm pre uh there's there's an app that's called dr potter <laughs> and uh this will this will download uh podcasts for you based on the urls that that you give it there's also like a little dr potter I don't want to call it a store, but it's like a like a little place where you can go to find podcasts and things. Um, that'll download them, and it'll download them over the air, so you don't need to sync or anything. And I really think, in many ways, the same as the way the Android works. The Palm Pre was designed to almost be more of a standalone device as opposed to the iPad and iPhone, which are Mac centric devices, if you will. Uh, they, they, you know, when you buy an iPad and you turn it on, the first thing that it says is plug me into iTunes. 
you know, I'm I'm not sure what you do if you bought an iPad and you don't have a computer to to connect it to because it just shows that iTunes connection symbol when you turn it on. I don't. It yeah, you, you know, find I, a friend. I guess you do. I, I talked. I asked John Gruber this question. He's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, so I I've probably only connected my Palm Pre to my Mac a couple of times since I got it. But when I do, uh, there's an app called uh, Selling Media Sync, which is, is is absolutely indispensable. It allows you to do all of the syncing that you want. It'll handle copying, whether it's audio files or uh, or video or you know anything like that. Uh, it'll it'll copy those things over for you and sync in a very very smart, very fast kind of way. But you know, keep in mind that all of the stuff that you might want to that, that you were syncing your iPhone for things like calendars, things like address book, uh, things like contacts, uh, all of those things are automatically synced by the Palm if you use Google Apps uh, or not Google Apps, but any of the Google App stuff like yeah. Google Calendar or whatever. And it's smart enough to know how to do that. So when you when you when you launch the thing the first time, you can give it your, you know, your Gmail address or your Google Apps address, and it'll be like, oh, you have calendars? Let me sync them for you. Oh, you have a contacts? I'll use that. So if you're syncing your local address book on the Mac to, to, uh, to Google Contacts, which you should be, then this will automatically pick all that up. And if you're using Google Calendars, which I do through iCal, uh, then you will automatically get those on your Palm Pre. And if you make an update to it on your Mac or on your Palm Pre, it's just everywhere. Uh, you don't have to worry about syncing or, or paying for a mobile me membership or anything like that. It's all just, just happens. So those things are really outstanding. And I really do like the email client, uh, you know, unified inbox that the Palm Pre gives you. So when I do use it to check email, uh, it, it's, it's all right there. I'll tell you the uh, the iPhone has been such a life changer for me. I use it and it helps me so much in my day job and other things I do. I could never imagine giving it up, but I'm really pleased to hear that there are are legitimate competitors out there and people pushing the envelope. And uh, hopefully that'll keep Apple on its toes uh, with respect to future releases of the iPhone. Yeah, I hope they're. I hope they at least are are looking at some of the things that that Pre has done. Uh, I'd like to see the webOS continue on under HP and and create some really good tablet computers or other devices that you know that we haven't even thought of yet. Well, everybody's saying you know, they're going to make a tablet, but why wouldn't they make a phone? I mean, HP has made phones before. And, True. Uh, this is a very good operating system. I mean, it's basically built by a bunch of the same guys that built the iPhone OS. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a neat OS, and you make a great point. It it is, and I'd I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it continue. Uh, you know at for the money, I mean, let me be honest. I'm an I'm I'm an honest guy. Uh, the iPhone's a better device. If you it, can it make really calls, uh, if if you could make phone calls and receive phone calls and continue with a conversation without uh, losing, you know, your connection, and that's something that I understand why Apple is is working with AT and T. That people are always speculating. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, but you know, if 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 there was if the iPhone became available. Uh, on Verizon, yes, I, I would get one. I'm, I probably wouldn't get rid of my Palm Pre simply because of the amazing uh, Wi-Fi stuff that it can do. Uh, so, you know, that would be a tough situation. But uh, And, you know, iPhone's not going to have that anytime soon. 
Well, Dan, it's been great having you here for our uh, second workflow show. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to walk through some of this stuff with us. I, uh, it's always great hearing how other people do things. Um, so uh, just for the listeners, where all can we find you? Oh, uh, well, thanks again, guys, for, for having me. It's really been uh, my privilege to be on the show. Hopefully uh, people can you know, take something away from my long rambling. Uh, they can they can find me if you want to read the things that I'm writing about. It's on HiveLogic.com. If you want to hear our podcasts, you can go to 5by5.tv. And that's, that's the best places to find me. Yeah, and that's the number five. Yeah, the number five. But although if you if you really want to, you can you can spell out five by five dot TV and it will go there too. Okay, huh. smart man. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Dan, for coming in, and uh, we look forward to having you on again sometime in the future to talk workflows again. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, that's going to wrap it up for another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. We do once again want to thank Dan Benjamin for joining us. You can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode over at our website at www.macpowerusers.com. While you're there, check out the amazing new header logo that was designed by uh, Darren Rolfe, who is the original artist of the Mac Power Users logo and a great friend of the show. So you can, can check out his great work. Also on our website, you'll find all the information about our sponsors, and we appreciate their support. Once again, Smile on My Mac, 1Password, and Fuse Meeting. Without their help, we would not be able to do this show, and we are very grateful for their continued support of the podcast. This was the second episode in our workflow series, our first being with Merlin Mann, and I think we've gotten it off to an absolute fabulous start. Back to normal next week with a more traditional Mac Power Users episode. David and I are going to be talking about some of our workflows with the iPad, but of course we're going to have a little uh, twist and an emphasis on productivity and actually getting work done with the iPad. So if you have any questions, any feedback about that topic or any of the other topics that we've discussed on this show, you can send us an email, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacPowerUsers. If you would like to support the show yourself, one of the easiest ways to do so is to write up a comment in iTunes. Um, iTunes comments are one of the ways that we can get featured as a podcast in iTunes, and the more exposure out there, the more listeners we get. So if you enjoy what you hear, um, please drop on over to iTunes and uh, let us know about it. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on in a couple of weeks.